Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The FT. Mortgage rates are starting to rise, but where can you get a better deal on your savings? Barclays is fined £7 million for selling cautious funds that made big losses, so which fund names can you trust? And with inflation worries now spreading to emerging markets, are developed markets a more exciting place to be? All this to come on this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent, and I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Alice Ross. Hello. And Steve Lodge. Hello. And our special studio guest, Richard Skelt, co-head of investment strategy at Fidelity International. Hello. So let's start with the money news. This week's announcement of the largest monthly rise in inflation for years, taking the Consumer Prices Index measure up to 3.7%, nearly twice the government target, has led to predictions of rising interest rates. Mortgage time bomb as cheap deals set to disappear, said one newspaper headline this week. Soaring rates on the way, said another. But at this newspaper, we have been wondering when savings rates are going to soar, if at all, after nearly two years of rock-bottom returns. At present, many of the best buy savings rates are based on short-term bonuses, which soon expire, leaving savers earning next to nothing. However, there are some signs that building societies may be trying to offer a better deal. Steve, you've been looking at these signs. What are they? Well, Matthew... um People, savers will be uh, will welcome the news, if you like, that some banks and building societies, albeit a minority, are trying to target their existing savers more rather than remaining wholly focused on just dragging in new money. So you mentioned rightly that the bulk of uh, the best buys, best instant access and notice camp best buys out there include these big introductory bonuses, which when they fall off, you're left with a rather less enticing rate. Um, but Leeds Building Society has been writing to thousands of its uh, internet online access savers, um, telling them that actually, well, we know your introductory bonus is coming to an end, but what we're going to do is going to give you a new bonus. And clearly it's aimed at retaining these funds because retaining funds is is the counterpoint of actually going out into the marketplace and attracting new money, of course. And this seems quite unusual in that, I think in the past, you know, these bonus rates would just expire and banks and building societies would just keep quiet about it. it. It's very unusual. I mean, it's more this kind of attempt to kind of get people to reinvest or rather not reinvest here, stay with you, is more common, of course, among in the fixed rate market where you have a defined maturity date. Um, but even there, you're typically... 
if your provider tells you that your fixed rate has matured, and there's an if there, um, the new fixed rate offers they typically present to you are no better than those available um, to new customers. Uh, but there are one or two people, one or two providers, again, who have re- most recently have been offering extra deals, extra existing saver-only deals, if you like. Um, so, for example, uh, West Bromwich Building Society has been approaching people in the middle of their fixed term and saying, well, actually, if you agree to extend your fixed term beyond the one year, then we'll give you an enhanced rate. Or um, ICICI Bank, uh, the Indian Bank, actually specifically gives a five basis point bonus, not much, I know, 0.05 in English, um, on uh, the, the new rate on the, the new bond for the existing savers. So they're actually getting a higher rate than the existing savers. But of course, what analysts say about all this is it's all very well to be offered these, if you like, retention deals or these extra deals or loyalty deals, whatever. But you still, of course, have to check whether it's the best in the marketplace. We don't have to, but you may find you can do even better if you shop around. But it may, of course, suit some people who can't be bothered with the switching. Does this have anything to do with the fact that the rules are changing on the notification of savers about changes to their interest rates? Well, exactly. I mean, you, you could take a rather more cynical view of this. That I was trying to take that cynical Well, of course, that it isn't just banks and building societies being nicey-nicey. I mean, of course, they're doing it for commercial reasons. Um, since last May... Um, banks and building societies have had to write to virtually all savers when any rate has fallen, in simple terms, um, uh, by, by, a, by a noticeable amount. And that noticeable amount would include when an introductory bonus comes off an account. So they're having to write to them anyway. So having told you that they're about to pay you much less, it just seems logical in some ways to say, well, by the way, we're paying you less, but actually we've just suddenly found some more money in the kitty and we're going to give you a bit more in the hope of course that you won't leave some analysts say that um with these best buy accounts when the bonus falls off there are sufficient numbers of active savers who switch between these accounts out there that the vast majority of savers leave very quickly so you do have a very active market in that bonus account and just very quickly of of any of these retention bonuses that you've seen i know we're only talking about a few at the moment have any of those been best buys or have people still been better off switching well, I think it's um, West Bromwich Building Society last year had some very good e-bonds that some people may still be in. For example, it, it um, had maturing rates last year that were paying 4.3% for one year, which was good money. Now you'd be lucky to get three. Um, some people were told if, uh, if they uh, were prepared to extend, say, six months, they could get the same rate, which at the time, for the time of the, the accounts available in that marketplace, was very good. So it's just simply a question of comparing. But it's a further sign of, if you like, this intense competition in savings. Um, and, of course, from a pure consumerist perspective, not all of us can be bothered uh, to switch accounts all the time. Clearly, it makes it's, it's that much more worthwhile with big balances. But if you can't, it means you are getting a less bad deal. Indeed, it does. And uh, to make it easy for you to compare any kind of uh, bonus rate or retention rate with the best buys, Steve has put together an analysis of all of the best rates that are currently available for the money section of this weekend's FT and on our website at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, where in the world will you find the best investment returns? We try to make sense of some conflicting predictions. First, though, fund names. 
On Tuesday, the Financial Services Authority imposed its largest ever fine for advice failings when it ordered Barclays to pay £7.7 million, plus £59 million in redress, to savers who were advised to buy a cautious or balanced income fund. The regulator found that Barclays had failed to ensure that these funds were suitable for customers and that the product brochures properly explained the risks involved. Of the 12,000 or so investors who were advised to buy these so-called cautious funds, um, most were retired or nearing retirement, and they then saw their apparently cautious investments lose more than 40% in a year. Now, Alice, uh, Barclays has been fined, and we've all seen the stories about that this week, but isn't it time something was done about these misleading fund names? Well, yes, it is really time that someone did something because, um, of course, calling a fund cautious is not by any means uh, limited to Barclays. In this case, it wasn't actually a Barclays fund. It was an Aviva fund that Barclays was selling. So it was the Aviva cautious, the Aviva balanced fund. But this is very, very common. Um, there's a whole sector um, from the Investment Management Association that is called cautious managed. And so uh, these cautious funds are hugely popular with investors who probably like the idea of committing money to what they see as a cautious fund. But in fact, I'm here with Richard Skelt at Fidelity. And Richard, if you have a cautious fund, that can mean that the fund has up to 60% in equities, doesn't it? Which maybe doesn't sound that cautious. That is absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I think it, I I would agree that it is a problem. I think uh, the the problem we've got here is that there's a series of uh, terms or descriptions that are used to describe fund types used by advisors. Uh, which were developed in the late 80s, early 90s, and had some resonance then. And, you know, with all sorts of business, there's jargon, there are terms which mean things to specific interest groups. But if you take them outside of that and offer them to the wider population, then there is the possibility that uh, people may not understand the risks that they are taking. And at that point, really, I think the only way to understand what it is you're buying is to look beneath the label and actually look at the asset allocation, actually what it is that you've got inside the portfolio. Even that can be quite tricky for your average private investor, can't it? Because while um, all of these funds have to produce monthly fact sheets and they have to say what they're invested in, so if you really looked at this, you could see that your cautious fund was 60% in equities and you'd see that your balanced fund was 85% in equities. But sometimes they're just not that easy to understand and they're investing in derivatives and all sorts of, you know, relatively complex instruments. And is it fair for to expect private investors to understand that, really? It's a very, very interesting question. And I, I guess it really comes down to what the alternative is. It, it is, you know, for those of us who work in this business, either directly or you know, in types of business which are very closely related to uh, investment management, then you know, we have an understanding of what 60% in equities actually means in terms of possible portfolio outcomes. And, you know, the fact that a portfolio that uh, has, say, 60% in equities could fall by uh, 30 or 40%, that's, um, you know, not unexpected. You'd have seen the same thing happen uh, between 2001 and 2003, um, very, very, very likely. So these sort of things are within the practical experience of those people who are active in the market. Uh, quite how you take that um, experience, which you know, the professionals have, and then make it available to individuals who, who may be buying it, particularly if they're going to something like a website, is a very, very tricky question. And I think um, it's uh, a lot of work needs to be done to be able to spell out to investors, whether private investors, people investing in DC schemes, um, who are exposed to market risk, that they actually un- understand 
uh, the parameters within within which the performance can fall. Mm. But even though there are all of these um, uh, kind of risk management things put in place to make sure that investors um, do can understand what's in that fund, for example, the monthly fund fact sheets, do you think that nonetheless the name in itself is misleading, calling a fund cautious? Yeah, I think it's it's not at all helpful, and it relates back to uh, an era when. Uh, people had a much more optimistic view on on life. You know, in the 1990s, if you look back over the last 15 years, with with one exception, you know, equity, one, one, you know, the 87 crash, and equities have delivered very, very consistent returns. The experience since uh, 2000 has been been very, very different, and you know, these labels clearly are not appropriate for the current environment. Mm. But there is some hope on the horizon, I think, because the uh, Investment Management Association told me this week that they're actually revising these fund sectors, um, cautious managed, balanced managed, and also. Absolute return, which is another hugely misleading um, fund name. Um, Matthew, I think you were speaking to the IMA. Yes, I, I, I had lunch with the, with the chief executive and said, um, "Get on with this process of reviewing the sectors and, and giving them better names." And uh, uh, he said, "Message uh, message received and understood. I'll get back to the membership, but it's still going to take, I think, till the end of the year." Mm, and they started in August last year. So I know. How long do you need? Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, my point is, surely, surely it should be the regulator, not the uh, the marketing association of the fund management industry that decides on a new anemic title. Um, you know, and I've got a bugbear with cash funds as well. The number of, I mean, what do you call your cash fund at Fidelity? Do you call it cash, Fidelity Cash? Uh, well, we've a range of them, but cash is, if it is, a, if it is a, a true cash fund... Well, this is the question, isn't the, it? Which is, you know, um, has uh, a nav that's not going to go down, then typically we would call that cash for a, a product which uh, does not have um, nav certainty, then that would not be called cash uh, in uh, under our internal procedures. I mean, this has been a big problem, hasn't it? A big problem in the States that... Uh, well, before here with Standard Life. Well, indeed, that funds haven't proved to be capital secure, even though they've been described as cash or cash-like, whether or not Fidelity or others. Certainly some fund managers have indeed described them as exactly that, and some advisors have. Exactly. I think something must be done and can be done um, right now. So we'll... We'll keep we'll keep campaigning for this, but uh, <laughs> uh, for now, Richard, thank you very much um, for that. And uh, if you'd like to know more about the sort of question marks surrounding not just cautious, but as Alice mentioned, absolute return uh, fund names and definitions, you can read Alice's cautionary tale in the money section of this weekend's FT and on the website ft.com forward slash money. And finally today, global equities. After a strong period of stock market gains in 2010, many investors will be wondering where the best place to put their money will be this year. And if fund sales figures are anything to go by, most private investors are backing global emerging markets. But emerging markets are looking increasingly susceptible to inflation, with fears rising that local governments will start to raise interest rates which would curb the returns that foreign investors could get. So some global equity fund managers instead think that developed markets, which have been out of fashion since the credit crunch, will be the areas that will grow most this year, with many shifting their portfolios towards the US. Alice, we, we receive uh, some note about an emerging markets fund almost every day <laughs> now. Um, why do you think people are now turning back from emerging markets to 
somewhere as traditional and developed as the US? Mm. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with valuation. I don't really think that anyone is now saying emerging markets are no longer going to grow loads in the future. We know that this is, um, you know, there's this huge population boom in emerging markets. Um, Far more people are are moving into the middle class, so they're, um, you know, consuming a lot more and they're starting to spend on luxury goods. So all of this is definitely going to contribute to long-term growth. What people are saying right now is that this year, emerging markets have had this amazing recovery since the credit crunch. They've risen absolutely loads. So people are saying this year they may not rise as much as some other places will just on a kind of short-term basis. Um, So then looking around where might rise more than it's grown previously, the US is looking good because the US, of course, has been massively out of favour since the credit crunch. Um, it, It wasn't growing at all. Its economy looked like it was in a shambles. But now with the Fed taking moves towards, um, you know, it did a second round of quantitative easing um, a few months ago, which, you know, seems to be going well. People are actually saying some US companies are massively underrated and they look like they could be a bargain. You mentioned uh, valuation being one of the factors that's um, encouraging people to to look at the US uh, again. Um, sort of in, in historical terms or on you know on sort of fundamental metrics, what sort of valuations are we talking about? Well, if you take some some companies, for example, Microsoft is currently on a price earnings ratio of about twelve. Now, if you compare that to one of its competitors, um, Salesforce dot com, that's currently on a price earnings ratio of one hundred and fifty which is just insane. Which sounds, yes, somewhat overvalued. Yeah, but it's just been hugely popular recently. Um, But everyone's meanwhile ignored Microsoft because, you know, Apple is kind of much more trendy at the moment. But people are starting to say, well, come on, Microsoft is is going to grow more than that. So this is a a cheap price to buy it at. Certainly. And just to come back to the other point you were making about um, the consumption habits of those in emerging markets, is there a case that Western developed market exporters producing the cars and luxury goods that people in emerging markets want to buy will also be attractive equity holdings. Yeah, that's definitely being recommended as a good way to get to the emerging market exposure right now, because that way you're still tapping into whatever consumer growth there will be in emerging markets. But you're doing it in a safer way that um, hopefully uh, takes away some of the risk of local governments in the emerging markets, you know, messing around with inflation and interest rates there. So um, big multinational companies, often those in the consumer space that are maybe selling luxury handbags, or um, it tends to not be things that you need, like milk and groceries and things like that. There's actually this report out this week from Credit Suisse showing that um, even wealthy consumers in emerging markets still buy domestic brands for those kind of things. But there is this kind of aspirational uh, thing for luxury items where they would prefer to buy Western brands. So in that case, you're um, you're onto a winner buying those kind of companies. And just uh, lastly, um, you talked about fund managers are now shifting emphasis towards developed markets. Are there any particular funds uh, started to do this that you'd, you'd single out? There are quite a few fund managers I've spoken to. I mean, in a way, so many people are talking about the US, you almost wonder if you shouldn't, you know, on a kind of contrarian uh, approach, invest in the US. But um, I was just speaking to John Chatfield Roberts this morning at Jupiter. He says he's now more overweight in the US than he's ever been. Um, then I was talking to Treetop Asset Management. They're also overweight in the US. Um, I was talking to Schroeder's, also overweight in the US. I think, though, isn't the danger, though, Alice, if you invest abroad, what you gain on the stock markets in the US, say, you lose on the currency. 
I mean, I think this is an issue for Brits this year, that we might see sterling strength. And the result of that is obviously the local currency weakness. Mm. So what you gain on the market, as I say, you lose on the currency, in which case that would be an argument for staying at home. It is. But if you buy into a global equity fund, you can usually rely on the fund manager to hedge some of that currency exposure because they're aware that most of their investors are based in the UK. So that is definitely a concern. But if you are buying into one of these global funds, usually they'll sort that out for you. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that, Alice. And for more on the relative merits and valuations uh, of global markets, look out for Alice's feature in the money section of this weekend's FT. But that's all for this week's FT Money Show. Remember, you will find weekday news updates and all of these stories on our website, ft.com forward slash money. And if you have a question that you would like us to answer about any aspect of your finances, just email us. The address is money at ft.com. Next week, we'll bring you another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Steve, Alice and our special guest, Richard Skelt from Fidelity. Goodbye. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.